This is Unfilter, episode 318 for July 23rd, 2020. Well, this is a major shift for the president. After dismissing the severity of this crisis, he is now changing course, stepping up calls for Americans to wear masks and acknowledging this pandemic is a growing threat. After downplaying the virus for weeks, the president came before cameras with a blunt assessment. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. The change in tone comes as Trump's advisors are warning him he'll likely lose the election in November unless he can convince voters he's taking the virus seriously. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unfilter, episode 318. And no, you didn't miss me last week. I missed you. It's good to be back after 5,000 miles and 50 days on the road of working and keeping my family safe and having a lot of very fascinating conversations. I decided once I got back into Seattle, which was um, as of this recording just a few days ago, I thought maybe I'd stop for a bit and sort of take stock of what was going on. And I had to process a bit on some of what I had learned on this road trip. When we got uh, to Lubbock, things started to get a little weird. It was like we were in a a civil war based around the masked and the unmasked. It was really something. So I'll try to tell you more about that later. But I want to start with the news and let's do a big Rona update for the last couple of weeks. The United States has added 903,000 infections in just two weeks. That is a stunning number anyway, but all the more sobering when we remember the important lesson of the past five months. When case numbers rise, other sad statistics follow. And already coronavirus deaths are again rising. You see there 1,082 recorded on Tuesday, yesterday. Also up hospitalizations, which now stand 222 shy of the pandemic peak. And as far as the conversation around COVID-19 in the States goes, a big part of it has shifted to students and teachers returning to school in the fall. Let's turn to the return to school, which is obviously on the mind of of lots of parents and teachers and children across the country. Jake Tapper from CNN interviewing Dr. Fauci. Uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and the president have insisted that schools across the country need to reopen Um, Have you spoken to them about your recommendations and your concerns about every school uh, taking all children in for in-person learning, uh, even if the virus is still spreading out of control? Jake, I have not specifically spoken to the president or to Secretary DeVos about that, but we have discussed this uh, in the presence of the vice president at the coronavirus task force meetings because this is obviously a very important problem. You know, in general, when I think about that, I I, I want to take a 40,000-foot look and say, as a fundamental principle, I do agree that we should try as best as we possibly can to get the children back to school because of the well-documented, you know, secondary, downstream uh, ripple effects that are negative, uh, particularly on parents and on the children when you keep them out of school. So if you at least agree that the general principle is to try as best as you can to get the children back to school. I think you have to put that in the context that an important issue in that is to make sure you do whatever you can to safeguard the safety and the health of the children as well as the teachers. Yeah, I think the teachers is also 
maybe a bigger part of the conversation that's not being had is in order for the kids to go back, the teachers have to go back. And this conversation is being had at a time when the case rates are very, very high. And so you'll see people often make the easy armchair joke, well, look, uh, we're having our school officials meet remotely to discuss getting schools together in person. It's ridiculous. But in the reality, they're trying to plan for something that's a moving target. We don't exactly know where things will be in the fall. But I do think there's ways we could have a better handle on it than we do now. So I want to set you up a couple of things. Number one, let's talk about these case rates, which have just exploded since the last time we've done Unfilter. And of course, it's a lot of reasons, um, part of which I speculated in a previous episode. You also have more testing, which means you catch more people. But there's also been a bit of a change in the definition of what's being reported as a case. And instead of me explaining it to you, I'm going to play a clip from the commissioner's court meeting in Colleen, Texas, I think it is. Uh, It happened on May 18th, 2020. And what's being presented here is a recording of a meeting where they're doing an update on the kind of health department guidances that have been issued across the nation and the new definitions of a term for a case. And here's the introduction for this meeting. At this time... We'd like to have a conversation under the same header of COVID-19 update. We'd like to have a conversation and a presentation on the uh, Department of State Health Services case definitions. State of Texas, DSHS, has informed public health departments that they they have adopted a revised definition for COVID-19 probable cases. And so we've invited our health department staff to come and uh, give a presentation today and inform the court and the public about this new definition. Aisha, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. So Aisha goes on to explain the old definition versus the new definition of a COVID case. So currently, a confirmed case of COVID-19 was considered confirmed uh, if there was a positive PCR lab result for COVID-19, meaning if they got the swab testing done, Um, and it came back positive, that would be what we counted as a case towards COVID-19. If you didn't have lab results, if you just had symptoms, um, we could not count you as a case. So regardless of the contact you may have had with a confirmed case or symptoms, if there was no testing, you were not counted as a case. So in this image, we have the confirmed case and their possible contacts. And the total cases out of this is only one. Um, And then if we go to the next page, the new case definition. So for confirmed case, it stays the same. You still just need PCR. But now they've added a probable case definition. Uh, So that still gets counted towards the case count. So this is key. The probable case definition, and I have more information linked in the show notes about this. Uh, The CDC has an updated page with this information. This changed back in May, and this means that probable cases can be reported as positive cases as well. Listen in. Probable case definition. Uh, So that still gets counted towards the case count. It's different. It's not confirmed. It's probable, but it's still a case. Meaning if you use another testing method, not PCR, And if you have close contact with a confirmed or probable case, and if you did that lab work that was not a PCR, you could be considered a case with or without um, symptoms. 
it's a bit sketch, so it's worth checking the show notes. And along with that, it's also changed in how the death cases for COVID are reported as well. It's a tweak to the definition here. The, they also updated the definition for deaths related to COVID-19. Previously, prior to this definition, it was only if you had a positive PCR result that you would be counted as someone who died related to COVID-19. Now that lab testing is no longer required to be counted towards that. So you don't have to have a positive COVID result to have that death counted. And this really kind of harkens back to a core issue I've had now at the very beginning of this, and it persists, is the data is such garbage. Because when, for example, when you when you hear about all these cases increasing, well, we learn that some of them are probable. And there's probably an argument to be made for counting probable cases, but it means you can't wholly trust the data. And everything is being filtered in regards to this growth through a particular media lens. The mainstream media is essentially just all propaganda for whichever side, the left or right, that needs a narrative. And in this past week, for example, it was reported that the White House was shutting down the CDC's access to test data and sending it to a private company instead. I literally saw hours of coverage on this over a weekend. Outrage on social media. Outrage on the podcast I listened to on my drive and on the radio broadcast. I saw celebrities having panic attacks about the Trump administration shutting down the data and just unbelievable the state of our nation. And it was all bogus. There was a change, but that change does not cut the CDC out of the data. They just simply became one of the many recipients of the data. So the feed, instead of going to the CDC and then being divvied up as they saw fit, is now going to a administration responsible party whoever that might be, I'd like to know. And then from there, sending out to multiple individuals and parties and, and organizations, including the CDC. And I don't know if this is great or not, but what I have found is these institutions that are flawed, if there is an anti-Trump angle, they'll be held up like the bastions of the world. I, I, I heard CDC described as as the gem of the world and the China's CDC was named and modeled just after ours because ours was so incredible. But from where I sit, it seems to me like multiple eyes on data tends to be a good thing. In fact, a very good thing. When having more people analyze the raw data, have we had bad results? And I'll remind you, the CDC doesn't have a perfect track record here. May 22nd, 2020 of this year, the CDC acknowledges mixing results of viral and antibody tests. And also, I remind you of this clip I played recently from Super Size Me about the CDC overestimating deaths from um, obesity, which was a bigger scandal back in the day, but we've just sort of forgotten about it. And at the time, there were headlines trumpeting everywhere that obesity was soon to overtake smoking as the number one cause of preventable death in this country. Uh, the head of the CDC, Julie Gerberding, went before Congress and issued big warnings. Uh, and there was a big uproar over the number of deaths that were to occur. Basically, what they did was divide their survey samples between people who are obese and people who are not obese, and then basically looked at rates of death. Now, if you were obese and you died from a snake bite, they would say that it was your obesity that was causing your death, not the snake bite. Uh, and this was part of a little statistical hanky-panky on their part. You know? And now you can find stories of uh, just one this last week of a gentleman on a motorcycle who died and they reported it as a COVID-positive case. 
Uh, but I continue on. Back to old Peter Jennings here. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Peter. On the news today, the Centers for Disease Control said it made a mistake about the scope of the obesity epidemic in the country. Roughly a year later, another set of researchers from the CDC offered a much, much lower set of estimates. Uh, according to their estimates, it was roughly 25,000 people a year who were dying from weighing too much. Researchers say that mathematical errors exaggerated the death toll. Why did the CDC inflate the numbers of deaths attributable to obesity? Follow the money. I think it's all about funding and bureaucratic mission. When I talk to a few CDC officials, they're constantly preoccupied about how much money the government or Congress is going to allot for them for the next year. And they're constantly worried about getting their funding cut. Follow the money. All of this might have gone unnoticed except for the anti-tobacco people who see this as a zero-sum game. So they see that if obesity becomes a big public health issue, it's going to crowd out funding to tackle smoking as a public health issue. So they were among the first people to, to, to point out a lot of the methodological problems in the estimates relating obesity to public health outcomes. They're a government agency that needs funding, and the worse the problem is, the better the funding is. I'm not trying to say anything beyond just that. Just we need to stay flexible. I think we need to be willing to change how we do this. I don't like the way we're currently testing And this week in Virology, episode 640 came along and really put it into focus what's wrong. And I realized by listening to that episode, early on, I expected we would just wind up with frequent testing. That it would just become a natural thing that, of course, you'd you'd just test everybody all the time really quickly, make sure everybody's okay. But that's not what's happened. But it perhaps should. So from episode 640, which I have the full episode linked in the show notes, I had Michael Minow on from the Harvard School of Public Health. And he and as well as others have a paper that's in pre-production that was picked up by the New York Times. And it makes the case for why we need much more frequent testing, perhaps even sacrificing the quality of the overall test or the range in which it can detect for testing you at your peak infection point. Yeah, and that's really, that's what this paper is all about. It's saying, and then we had an op-ed, I don't know if you saw it, in the New York Times um, calling for, it's kind of on the heels of that. It was with um, Larry Kotlikoff, who's an economist at BU, who's become very engaged at, uh, in, in sort of this, you know, trying to figure out solutions. Um, but the whole idea there is to take that, what that paper showed, which is essentially that high-frequency testing using a less sensitive test goes much further than low-frequency testing using the best mm-hmm. test in the world. And, um, and we pretty much found that if you test less than you know, every two weeks, you're not going to be able to contain yeah. pathogens, yeah. at least you know, unless you have a more dynamical approach where you find a case and then you throw in more frequent testing. In fact, he makes the case that likely the type of testing we're doing is mostly catching people a week after their peak infectious rate. And then we're usually 14 to 17 days after that doing the contact tracing for that person, which by that point, it's sort of pointless and a huge waste of our effort. And all of that would be much more economical and much more worth that effort if we were doing much faster, much more frequent day of type testing. Something cheap where tests only cost a dollar so you could test yourself every day before you say, go to school. But what I would suggest is we have really cheap, low sensitivity, from a molecular perspective, low sensitivity tests that are a dollar, mm. you know, that people take every day. And so then you, you know, it doesn't have to catch you in your incubation period. It doesn't have to catch you 20 days later. 
It just has to tell you the morning of that you have enough virus that you could be transmitting. This week in virology is a community favorite in the Discord, so I definitely recommend you just check out the whole podcast. 6.40 for the extended interview, but I want to play you one last bit. And that's maybe the most frustrating thing about all of this, is these $1 type paper tests exist already, but it's a bit of a numbers game for why they're not getting approved. It's It's sort of become the norm to expect these tests to detect a certain range from very early in the infection to well after the infection. And if you can't get all these particular checkboxes just right, then you don't qualify. And so companies don't feel confident and they're not pushing it forward and the FDA isn't making it easy. Uh, But these companies are shaking in their boots saying, well, we can't go to the FDA. We can't try to market this test yet because its sensitivity is is three orders of magnitude worse than PCR analytically on the molecular Level. And so I've been saying, you know, this, the FDA and the CDC and the NIH have to change their messaging. They have to say, look, there is actually a technology that a test could exist right now. I have some sitting in my office next to me. Um, they're paper strips. They're just little pieces of cardboard printed with monoclonal antibodies that can pick up an antigen. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a lateral flow assay. It can be printed in the millions and um, and could be probably done by the federal government, funded by the federal government for, you know, a dollar a piece. And uh, sure, they're not going to be nearly as sensitive as PCR. But if everyone could wake up every day and take it, you know, these things could could exist. But the way that the FDA is evaluating tests right now, they're saying they want it to be eighty percent as sensitive as a PCR. Something else that's a bit frustrating is it seems like there's some really good evidence to suggest that saliva-based testing works just as good as the old dry swab up against the brain that is extremely uncomfortable. And it's essentially just a lack of interest in the established testing workflows to change them. People don't really want to go through that effort. They've sort of built a system around the swabs and it's working. But if you switch to something that was saliva-based where you lick a piece of paper or you spit into a tube and send it off, it makes it just that much easier for people to test themselves or to get tested, which means we catch this stuff even sooner. And that's what's so brilliant about the daily tests. Imagine the school scenario. You test yourself every morning as a kid or as a teacher, and if you come up positive that day, you don't go in. But because these tests aren't as accurate, you'd say... Well, what if they don't detect them when they're just getting sick and so then they go in and they're infectious and they get more people sick and then the next day they get caught? Well, that's good. That's actually a good thing because then they're at least getting caught within the next day. So it's a limited amount of exposure plus all of the other people that went there to that school in theory would also be getting tested. And so if an infection started to spread, you would catch it very quickly, perhaps day of, if not second day. That's powerful. Even if you just held them back and had some more approved testing or whatever it would take, that kind of rapid $1 a test approach seems like the safest way to get people back to school and back to work. And I I think maybe it has a good shot. Trump was asked recently in a press conference, and he says he likes the quick testing. So maybe it has a shot, but really go listen to This Week in Biology 640 and then share it with people. More people need to talk about that. The other thing that I think has been in discussion a lot in the last couple of weeks since the last Unfilter is the state of the vaccine. How close is it? And what do we do once it's here? 
Good evening, everyone. We get to lead off tonight with a rare piece of positive news about our battle with coronavirus. The early results are in for one of the most closely watched vaccine trials out of Oxford University. The bottom line, researchers say it's safe and it triggered the hope for immune response in volunteers. The fast track on which this drug is being developed years quicker than typical vaccines is both reason for hope and for caution. It's where our team begins tonight. Here's Richard Engel. The initial results look promising. A possible COVID-19 vaccine from the University of Oxford appears safe to continue testing, scientists say, and produces two types of protection from the coronavirus that has so far killed more than 600,000 people worldwide. The trial included more than 1,000 healthy volunteers aged 18 to 55, with half receiving the experimental vaccine shown to rapidly and robustly increase both coronavirus-fighting antibodies and virus-hunting T-cells, according to results released today in the British journal The Lancet. So the administration noted that they are pre-manufacturing the vaccines that look the most promising, the ones that seem to be on the right track. They're going ahead and just starting to make them once they're at a certain point, and they'll just, I guess, throw them away, maybe sell them on eBay if uh, those vaccines don't work out, and then they'll mass produce and ship out the ones that do. We have... First of all, um, a vaccine which is very well tolerated. And then secondly, um, that we are seeing uh, good immune responses, exactly the sort of immune responses we were hoping for. I caught up today with the Viney family, all three taking part in the Oxford trial. So when you read that, it's safe, appears to be effective on two levels. You have it in your bodies. What did you think? It's good, but it's effective and safe. I think that the uh, fact it's producing T-cells as well are shown to be is, is a bonus, isn't it? It's like the cherry on the cake. And it tastes delicious. Really? How are you feeling? Several months have gone by. Uh, no difference at all. Not, even, not noticed anything at all, have we? Yeah, no no side us. effects at all. But there are some potential side effects, including headache and fatigue. There is a big competition here, and the Western nations want to win it. So when could it be available? NBC's Keir Simmons spoke with the director of the Oxford Institute leading the research. If everything goes well, a vaccine by early 2021? A vaccine later this year is not impossible. A lot of things would have to go right for that to happen and to be deployed in 2020, but we're still targeting that. But scientists still don't know how older or vulnerable people will react to the vaccine, how long it lasts, or if it's strong enough. The only way we're going to find out is by doing the large phase three trials and wait for people to be infected um, in, as part of that trial. But the manufacturer, AstraZeneca, isn't waiting, already producing now. And the U.S. has secured 300 million doses. Oh, yeah. Scientists believe they can have an early batch for medical professionals or high-risk populations ready this year with wider distribution next year. And the plan is to have the military distribute it. And maybe they are on to something because there's reports from the FBI that hackers in China 
are going after COVID-19 research. Less than a week after Novavax, a Maryland biotech firm announced that it was researching a potential COVID vaccine, the FBI says. A computer hacker in China, Li Xiaoyu, searched for ways to hack into its computers. Now he and a former college classmate are wanted men, charged by federal prosecutors with trying to hack into three other U.S. companies working on COVID treatments and testing. They didn't succeed in stealing anything, the Justice Department says, but their cyber attacks were a potential distraction. Oh, man. Not a distraction. Boy, sure would be horrible if they broke in and got information on how to treat and cure this thing and save lives. That would be horrendous. Wait a minute. What is going on here? Think about, think about the aspect of this vaccine that's not being discussed much. And that's that this thing's a product. And each nation is racing to be the owner of that product. That's what's really happening here. And that's really what that report exposes. And that's a pretty uncomfortable thing to think about. So we're just not talking about it. The media just doesn't really talk about it. But it's the reality. And uh, you saw that the, uh, or you heard there that the U.S. put an order in for 300 million orders <laughs> from the Oxford vaccine, folks. <laughs> uh, I wonder what old Fauci thinks about all of this. Uh, we don't know because he wasn't invited to Trump's recent briefing. Were you invited to the, to the briefing today? I was not invited up to this point. I'm assuming that I'm not going to be there because it's going to be in just a short while and I'm still here at the NIH. So I'm assuming it's not going to be there. When's the last time you, you spoke directly with the president? Oh, I had a good long conversation with him uh, towards the end of last week. Now, the point they're trying to make on CNN is the president is going up here and doing these briefings without officials. And the president's pitching it as, well, this is a shorter, tighter presentation down to 30 minutes. But he did manage to get a lot of attention by restarting these week. Oh, no, they're pff, weekly daily briefings. And. To that end, I don't know if I'm going to try to watch them every day or not. If they're a half hour, I probably will. I watched every last one of them, and what I did find was there was some good things in there, and there was some embarrassing things in there, and the media would almost never play the good things. So, And, and sometimes good things could be defined as informational, you know, actual news. With coronavirus deaths nearing 142,000 and cases approaching 4 million, you will hear people say there was a change in tone from Donald Trump today. It is true his mouth emitted different sounds and words. <laughs> you know, you can really tell that CNN respects the office. Tone from Donald Trump today. It is true his mouth emitted different sounds and words, a change. But whether we see a change in policy, a change in action, that remains to be seen. Still, for this one moment at this one briefing today, the president by and large said things out loud that he rarely does. Some areas of our country are doing very well. Others are doing less well. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. It's the way, it's what we have. In addition to that, the president also gave his fullest, least equivocal endorsement yet of steps to slow the spread. And we're asking everybody that when you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, whether you like the mask or not, 
Uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. We're instead asking Americans to use masks, socially distance, and employ vigorous hygiene, wash your hands every chance you get while sheltering high-risk populations. We are imploring young Americans to avoid packed bars and other crowded indoor gatherings, be safe, and be smart. I have family who's uh, in their late 80s, and they're trying very, very, very hard still to stay home, don't go out, because they are in that risky group right there. And you wonder where this will leave us. Will we get ahead of this thing? It's it's a numbers game, and things are delayed. And when I say a numbers game, I mean there's a, a series of points in which there are delays introduced into the system. Somebody has to get sick enough to go in and get tested. Then that has to get processed. You have to mail that off. That takes a bit. Then it gets counted. And then there's the leg of the death count. So it's hard to really know when something's peaking how, how long it will last. It's a bit like Bitcoin. But you do see confidence shifting in certain areas, and I find that to be pretty interesting. And I think it kind of maybe helps if we think about this realistically. Dr. Anthony Fauci says, we're never going to eradicate this thing. And so we, I think we should think about it from that perspective. How do we mitigate? It's like um, we're gonna society has herpes now, and it's just going to have to live with it. It's going to have sores on its uh, genitals forever. <laughs> and when things get really bad, it'll have a flaring up session. And I think we have to just kind of move forward with this mindset. Because so many people have asymptomatic infection, 20 to 45% of people, it certainly is a killer of those who are the senior citizens and those with underlying conditions. Inter occasionally, you have an exception. We have a perfectly young, healthy person has very serious disease and died. That's a minority of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't see this disappearing the way SARS-1 did. The reason I say that is that it is so efficient in its, its ability to transmit from human to human that I think we ultimately will get control of it. I don't really see us eradicating it. I think with a combination of good public health measures, a degree of global herd immunity, and a good vaccine, which I do hope and feel cautiously optimistic that we will get. I think when you put all three of those together, I think we will get very good control of this. Whether it's this year or next year, I'm not certain. But I think ultimately, with a combination of good public health measures and a vaccine, that we may not eradicate it, but I think we will bring it down to such a low level that we will not be in the position that we're in right now for an extended period of time. All right, let's pause the show right here because I really blew it and I have to fess up. Um, I could have done better about communicating where the show was going to be at while I was on the road. The, I'll, st I'll tell you the backstory really quickly. So the backstory was is once we got to about Lubbock, I kind of accelerated the pace at which we were returning to the Pacific Northwest because things started to get uncomfortable. I walked in on this huge argument between an employer and her staff. The staff, one of the staff members wanted to wear a mask and the employer was very, very against it. And then I just started seeing this replay all throughout Lubbock 
and I, I just people were very, very, very fired up about it. And like, you show up wearing a mask, and you could get yelled at. And another time, you'd be walking around not wearing a mask. I actually got yelled at for that too. And I was just walking from this wasn't in Lubbock, but I was walking from my car to an office building, and I got yelled at. And it was just crazy how it was all building there, and we decided to just get moving, which meant it became pretty tricky to record. And then uh, I hit Montana. And went into a week of vacation mode, which is a, fa- a, a planned family trip to Bozeman, Montana, which might be one of the best places on earth. Not not sure, but I just love it so much. And you know how the, the saying about Montana is big sky. Boy, is it. And to see those stars and to see the uh, Neowicks or whatever it was comet, um, really cool. And to have all of us there and campfires and just the whole thing was just, well, it was a trip of a lifetime. But I realized what I should have done is I, there's two ways I'm going to go forward. Executive decision time here in communicating if there's a show delay. And I want to talk briefly, too, about why I have show delays. So I will always try to make a post in the announcements channel in the Discord at unfiltered.show slash Discord. I should have thought of that. I didn't think of that until today. But also, if it's going to be like a significant delay... Um, you know, more than a few days or something like that, I will also try to make a brief audio message and put it in the show feed. That just seems like the best obvious way <laughs> to get the word out. And I, you know, I, I didn't really think about it because um, it's been a long time since I've done a show 100% solo. And even like the, you know, that kind of stuff, usually there's somebody in the JB team that would manage it if I was out all of a sudden. If I was like, shoot, I got to drive. Can you, you know, can you tweet or can you can you post a message in the LUP thread or, you know, whatever? Like, I don't have that here. It's just me. And so I didn't really think it all through in the heat of the moment. But I have thought about it now, and I will attempt to communicate that better. Now, as to delays themselves, I kind of think I've been trying to think more and more about what separates Unfilter from all of the other news sources And in a big part, it's my analysis because it's unique to me. And it's sort of my benchmark of the people's history of things that change the the world that week. And I also have the philosophy of if something really urgent happens, if something big breaks, and you saw saw this towards the beginning of the coronavirus, uh, I'll try to do as many episodes as physically possible to adequately cover the story. But I try to do at least a minimum of one a week. But I think it's also not a bad idea that from time to time, I allow that to slip if it's in service of looking at the bigger picture, collecting a wider range of news, if it's in somehow for betterment of the show, even if that's like I take a vacation every now and then just so I don't burn out. So I, I don't want to like be super hard on it either. So I, that, I practiced that a little bit. When I was making that drive and then I got to Montana and it was time for the annual family vacation, I thought to myself, why don't I just put effort into staying current on the news and doing analysis? And I was listening to a ton of stuff on the drive. I mean, 5,000 miles at roughly 55 miles per hour. <laughs> you can probably guess how much time I was driving. Lots to listen to. I decided to put my focus there and wait for some things to play out that I expected to land on Monday and Tuesday of this week and then record 
Wednesday night after work for Thursday morning release. Instead of just rushing back and recording something, just banging it out and just getting it out there so I, so I wasn't late, I thought, no, instead I'm going to be a little more methodical about it. But what I, where I failed was I didn't let you guys know. So I apologize for that. Some of you won't even notice. Some of you will be listening a year or two later. It won't even matter. But for those of you who want to tune in every single week and want to know where the heck things were, that's what's up. And let's be clear, having this kind of flexibility is because this is a Patreon-supported show. And I think that is an example of it's not always 100% consistent, but it's in a way that is best serving the show. It makes the show sustainable. The difference being with an advertising-based show, for better or for worse, you have a contract in place. You have an agreement to produce X amount of ads in that contract which means you're not missing a week. Which uh, has put me in the hospital in the past because I couldn't stop working. And I'm the only one that can do this job. So it's, it's, a, it's a very long-term, big-picture way to keep a show sustainable. And it's only possible when it's audience-funded. Because the audience will ultimately decide if that did serve the show or not. But there's no contract in place that says every single week, even if you need a week off. And I think that's what's going to be another long-term difference of the Unfiltered show versus, say, if I had started the show back up and decided to go with a VPN sponsor, which would have been an easy sell for this show. A VPN sponsor, any of the Privacy Shield sponsors for like your identity they they just eat these types of genre of podcasts up. If you've got a decent-sized audience, they're all about it. But I have no interest in that. In fact, those ads drive me crazy. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you very much for your support. And if you're not supporting us yet, go check it out. See if it's something you could afford. And Also, if you want to support the show, pass it around. If you think there's somebody that would be interested in the topics that we cover, let them know. And one more plug for that uh, Discord unfiltered.show slash discord. All right, let's get the show back going again. We got other things to talk about. Oh, I'm getting fired up now. Yeah. There's an area of the industries out there that's been hit real hard by the big Rona, and it's one that hasn't gotten much attention, but I think you've all been wondering, what about the hookers? Prostitution is one of several trades that have been shut down in Germany since the start of the coronavirus. Although brothels and massage parlors have officially been shuttered since mid-March, many sex workers carry on illegally, and that's putting them and their clients at risk, brothel owners point out, and say they can offer a safer environment all round. You see, this is where frequent testing would be very valuable. <laughs> but, I, you know, I kid, but... Uh... It's true. And one of the stories I was waiting uh, for more information on, and it landed, and I I know we've talked about this. You guys know that if you've been listening to the show, we saw this coming with the dramatic drop in gas usage from the lockdowns and then the corresponding battle royale between Saudi Arabia and Russia over oil prices. So between that and the demand drop, the price of oil just tanked for a while, and... Uh, it was pretty clear that if it stayed low, a bunch of these independent U.S. shale oil or whatever type of oil they're doing, it's, it ranges. 
I, I call it shale oil most of the time, but it's not just shale oil. But let's be honest, that's a lot of it. I said, I said that they would get bought up. They would get swooped up because they're going to be super cheap and they're unsustainable. And then we're going to have a less competitive market, which means ultimately oil prices will go way, way up because it's going to consolidate. Chevron's Mike Worth with us in the last hour talking about Chevron's $5 billion purchase of Noble Energy. Oh. Brian Sullivan joins us to talk about it. And Brian, you made the point that it's certainly a good deal price-wise versus six years ago. Yeah, or, you know, maybe even six months ago or a little bit longer than that, Carl. Uh, yeah, you look at the deal, and I know Jim brought it up in that excellent interview that he did about Occidental buying Anadarko. And I don't think Jim was trying to pick on either company, but $38 billion price tag there, Oxy buying Anadarko. Now you got Chevron coming in and buying Noble, which is not as big as Anadarko, but it's not that much smaller than that. Yep, yep, yep. They're snapping them up. They're snapping them up. Another way that these lockdowns have really served large corporations, and it's one that is a little bit more removed from the common marketplace, but it's going to be a really big deal long term. Oil prices being around $40 is still not enough for these independent U.S. companies to survive. It's nice for those of you out in the, uh, in the gas pl- marketplace buying gas, except for here in the Pacific Northwest where it's still crazy expensive. But like down in Texas, I was paying $1.75, $1.81 per gallon. Uh, and as I worked my way up north, it got more expensive. I think in Montana, it was around $2.30 a gallon. Here in the Pacific Northwest, it's around $2.79 a gallon. And it's just going to go up, especially when um, these large corporations are running the operation. But knock-on effects, right? I suppose that's the knock-on effects. And one that's going to have a lot of knock-on effects is... What happens with this next round of stimulus, which is is phenomenal that we're talking about more trillions of dollars being printed, but how they handle that is going to have huge effects on the state of the economy come this time next year. Melissa, top congressional Democrats just finished a roughly 90-minute meeting with officials from the Trump administration, including the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in which Democrats communicated to the administration that the $1 trillion benchmark that they're currently working with is not sufficient and that they want to see uh, the draft of the Republicans' bill before trying to negotiate against broad principles. Despite $2 trillion of differences between where the two parties stand right now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is drafting that forthcoming bill, said today that it will include at least one of several Democratic priorities, and that is another round of direct stimulus checks. One of many. And this really pisses me off because it was months ago when they negotiated the HEROES Act that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer blew it, where they didn't push for state and local funding. And as a result, We have states that are going massively into debt and cities that are going massively into debt right now. It's a big problem, and it's one that your good buddy Governor Kuman warned us about months ago. When you don't fund state and local, you know who you don't fund? Police, fire, school teachers, school officials. What was the possible theory of funding large corporations but not firefighters? And not police, and not healthcare workers. I mean, it boggles the mind. And all they said was, don't worry, right? Don't worry, we're going to do it in the next bill. We're going to do it in the next bill. We're going to do it in the next bill. I said to the 
our congressional delegation, I said to our senators, Schumer and Gillibrand, don't pass this past bill that they just did unless you have state and local funding because they're not going to do it. Don't worry, don't worry. They're not going to do it. As soon as the Senate acts, McConnell turns around and says, oh, I'm not going to do it. The state should declare bankruptcy. Yeah, we covered that on the show, and that's exactly what happened. Pelosi said, oh, we'll get it, we'll get it, we'll get it. And then they never got it. Now, back in April, Jake Tapper asked her about this, and her response was so dismissive, like she was some sort of political mastermind. Well, here we are, three months later, and we're still not going to get it. You and Senator Schumer made this major concession on the most recent legislation. You it wasn't made a it concession. Okay in this yeah. one. It wasn't a concession. No, well, I mean, was New York a, the, Governor the, Andrew Cuomo. I understand what Andrew Cuomo said, and I, I respect his perspective as right, no, always I, an interim I, bill. Uh, yes. Was this a tactical mistake by you and Senator Schumer? Just calm down. We will have state and local, and we will have it in a very significant way. (laughs) She gets a little Trumpy in there, doesn't she? And those words burn in hell because she never got it done. And it's a big problem. When the cities start to go bankrupt, it's a domino effect. An interim bill. Uh, uh, Was this a tactical mistake by you and Senator Schumer? Just calm down. We will have state and local, and we will have it in a very significant way. We made right. the most of it. Let me recap this for you. Uh, the governors are impatient. I'm a big fan of Governor Cuomo, my own governor. Um, uh, uh, Gavin Newsom has been so spectacular. <clears throat> Vice President Joe Biden's campaign told me earlier this. Oh, he tries to help her out there. So now we're at the point where they're trying to figure out what to do with this unemployment bonus money. So you recall there was a little extra money kicked in with the unemployment per week that made it a little more easy for folks to live. It was $600 a week, I believe. This clip will, uh, this clip reminds us. And by doing that, some believe it sort of stabilized the economy. It gave people the confidence to continue to purchase. And it, it has lessened the overall economic impact of the lockdown and the coronavirus. And if you take that away, you will lessen consumer confidence. Now, the counter argument is, well, people won't want to go back to work with all that good money. So now the idea is, instead of something like $600 per week, how about just $400 extra a month? That's it. Stimulus negotiations are still incredibly fluid at this hour, but I have learned where discussions are centering on specifically this expansion of unemployment benefits that had been at $600. Where Republicans are discussing that going right now is uh, continuing to expand the benefit, but by just $400 a month. That is a lower level than at present, but the Republican proposal I have learned from two sources familiar with negotiations, that would go through the end of this year, through December 31st. So certainly a sign that lawmakers believe that there could be an employment crisis in this country that would go through the end of the year such that they would need to keep those benefits expanded at some level. To compare it to where Democrats were, Democrats in the HEROES Act that they passed back in in May, they had kept the $600 a week boost 
through the end of January of next year. So there's certainly quite a bit of difference between where Republicans are and where Democrats are. That's where negotiations will take place. But Republicans, as I reported, according to two of my sources close to negotiations, are looking at a $400 a month plus up to unemployment. They had been talking about $200 a week or roughly $800 a month. They've come down from that, perhaps expecting that they'll need to move a little bit once they get in the room with Democrats. Yeah, it is a bit of a negotiation tactic, I suspect. But if they blow that, if they don't get that right, I think it's going to cause a a really bleak picture um, because we're not even yet realizing the full impact. And so to pull the plug on that, when we're talking about such a small amount of money to a group of people who are already so down on their luck, it almost seems cruel, especially when you consider how much money these fat cats like McConnell and Pelosi are worth. <laughs> it's just, it really is shocking. And you're printing these trillions and you're giving it to the companies, but you're, you're quibbling over what works out to be just hardly anything in the grand scheme of things about what you give to the people. Let's Speaking of the rich and illustrious, let's talk about Gasoline Maxwell. How about a little Gasoline Maxwell update? The News Corp-owned son gossip rag says that Gassy is afraid she's going to be suicided they also claim they tracked down her husband which didn't even realize she had one Gillen maxwell's trial is scheduled for july 12 2021 she'll remain locked up in federal detention until then after a judge denied her bail last week the question now among many others will she survive the pre-trial detention or meet the same fate as her former boyfriend and alleged partner in crime jeffrey epstein the British tabloid The Sun reports that Maxwell believes Epstein was murdered while being held in jail and fears she'll meet the same fate. The Sun, owned by News Corp and Rupert Murdoch, which also owns Fox News, quoted an unnamed family friend saying Maxwell fears she'll be, quote, bumped off inside the brutal New York jail, which wardens describe as a hellhole. It's called the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, or MDC Brooklyn. Regilla Noel Maxwell is inmate number 02879-509. Epstein was held at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Lower Manhattan, or MCC, before his lifeless body was found in his jail cell last August. The official coroner ruling was suicide by hanging, but there have been plenty of theories and even private autopsy reports by the family contending he was murdered. Why? The potential dirt he had on the various rich and powerful friends who may have been involved with his sordid and perverted life of sexually abusing and trafficking young women and teenage girls. Maxwell is accused of being the person who essentially ran Epstein's sex trafficking operation, recruiting girls as young as 14 to be sexually abused by both she and Epstein and then lent out to his powerful friends. I read a story this week that when they couldn't get one of those powerful friends to sleep with someone and compromise them. They'd hire actors to claim that they had been violated in some way by that powerful person. It was a system they had. There's a lot of smoke around this one, huh? It seems that perhaps both of them were working for an intelligence agency. There's multiple links and multiple versions of the episode show notes over the last few weeks that would kind of build that case. And then there's the ancillary stories around Epstein that kind of seem to indicate something bigger is going on here. Like the judge whose son was shot and killed and the husband injured in attack in her New Jersey home. 
Breaking news overnight, a deadly shooting at the home of a federal judge in New Jersey. Her son killed, her husband critically wounded after a man dressed as a FedEx driver came to their door and opened fire. Stephanie Ramos has the very latest. Now, uh, the dressed as a FedEx driver thing, um, that's either a professional, someone who's really thought this through, or a go-to move of an agency. Overnight, a manhunt for the man officials believe opened fire on a federal judge's home, killing her son and wounding her husband at the front door. We advise you have two victims. Sources tell ABC News the gunman may have been posing as a FedEx delivery driver when he arrived at the home of U.S. District Court of New Jersey Judge Esther Salas at 5 p.m. Sunday evening. Investigators say when her 20-year-old son, Daniel, opened the door, the shooter shot him, killing Daniel and hitting his father, a prominent criminal defense attorney, multiple times. Just wonderful, wonderful people. This is an absolute shock. Judge Salas has presided over many high-profile cases, like Real Housewives star Teresa Judice's trial for fraud. And most recently, she was assigned to a case involving Jeffrey Epstein. The judge was reportedly in the basement when the shootings happened. She was not harmed, and police have not identified any suspects or a potential motive. Very sad. And let me be clear, history shows us that when a society begins murdering their judges, it's at a certain point of failure, a certain state of collapse. But it was in the report very quickly, and I want to go to another one that expands on it a little bit. Yeah, that judge was overseeing a Deutsche Bank Epstein trial. Most recently, she was handed the uh, case that involved Deutsche Bank and its uh, handling of high-risk clients, including Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, so that was a class action suit with, with Deutsche Bank. Now, what they don't go into is there's documents that show that Deutsche Bank was aware of what a predator, and this was after he had been convicted previously, they were aware of his conviction, but determined that the potential upside for them was so high because he had a great network and could lead to other very lucrative clients. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal. There's also a really weird kind of theme. I don't know what you call this. Uh, theme's probably not the right word, but coincidence, I suppose, that when there's high stakes cases against banks that are helping money laundering for drug organizations or secret activities of terrorists. It's amazing how people involved in the case start having emergencies with their families and start dying themselves. It seems to be a particular coincidence around banks uh, and, and very rarely reported on. If it wasn't for the extreme violent nature of this one and the fact that it's tied to Jeffrey Epstein, Trust me, you would not have heard of it because this kind of stuff actually happens somewhat frequently. Not the, not the judge shooting so much, but the, the kids and the family, and it's, it's, it's disturbing as hell. But the FBI believes they've actually identified the shooter, and they've done so fairly quickly, and surprise, surprise, he's killed himself. The FBI has identified a suspect in the murder of a federal judge's son. The Bureau saying Roy Den Hollander is the, quote, primary subject in the attack and that he is now dead. Reports say he committed suicide. The man allegedly opened fire in Judge Esther Salas' home early Sunday evening. That's how you know he's a professional, is when he fails, he kills himself. Or he gets killed. Um, there is also a bit of a twist in this. He's, he's being framed as an anti-feminist, which may be true or not. What I can see is that he seems to have defended certain clients 
Um, and so that may be where that's coming from, or maybe he made some statement. I did not look extensively into it, but I've noticed that labels used a lot when talking about this individual. Tonight, authorities uncovering disturbing twists as they investigate the attack on New Jersey federal judge Esther Salas's family that left her only son dead and husband in the hospital. Law enforcement sources revealing suspect Roy Denhollander is also being investigated in the killing of Mark Angelucci this month in California. Mark was an angel here on earth and he will be greatly missed. Sources say the gunman in Angelucci's killing was dressed similarly to Den Hollander, wearing a FedEx uniform when police say he opened fire on Salas's 20-year-old son Daniel and husband Mark Anderl on Sunday. A 2015 case in which Den Hollander, a lawyer and self-described anti-feminist, represented the plaintiff was presided over by Judge Salas before another lawyer took over in June 2019. That's kind of a weak connection, although it's something. A 2015 case that he didn't even see to completion. It's pretty weak motivation, but I suppose if uh, you're a messed up individual, who knows what motivates you? Um... I can't, I can't really make sense of it. I can't. Zided over by Judge Salas before another lawyer took over in June 2019. Authorities seen removing boxes from his New York City apartment. Sources say Den Hollander killed himself in upstate New York on Monday. The names of a dozen others were found in his car, including New York State Chief Judge Janet DeFiore. Two guns and cash were also found, sources say. Oh, all that's missing is a suicide letter or a manifesto. What I what I noted in there is they think he might be the murderer in another lawyer's murder in California because that guy also wore a FedEx uniform. That's sort of weak. There's a it's probably not the first person who thought I'll dress up as a delivery person to get their confidence to get them to open the door. And then I'll shoot them. It's, it's dark, but it's probably not just his idea. Seems like a seems like a little bit of a social hack. President Trump is trying to hack his way into your heart. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. He's losing in elections. What he's doing? It's it's interesting. Um, I I don't know about the polls. You know, it's hard to say because it was such a slam dunk for Hillary, leading up to twenty sixteen. But just observing the Trump campaign's behavior, I think they think they're struggling. And uh, Biden's campaign has come out with a message now. They've rolled out Build It Back Right. And uh, he's out of the garage and uh, out of the basement and out of the area where you could hear the geese a lot more. So he's out and he's taking his stance. And so President Trump is trying to figure out, I think, how to gain the faith of the American people again. And he's trying all these law and order things and the statue stuff. And he's forgotten that it was sort of his populist opinions that got him in the office in the first place. Trump was the guy that was calling the unemployment numbers bullcrap and saying that the stock market didn't represent the real economy. Then he gets in the office, and now he needs that stuff to bolster his presidency. It's his biggest accomplishment as far as he's concerned. So he can't say that stuff. So he hasn't really figured out what to focus on to energize people, in my opinion. Right now, his best case is that he's not Biden. And Biden's best case is that he's not Trump. It's a pretty divisive state of affairs right now. And so Trump decided to go on the Chris Wallace show on Fox, and it was one of them ask any kind of questions interviews. 
And hello again from Fox News in Washington. Today from the White House, we're on the president's patio just outside the Oval Office. President Trump, you've agreed to answer all manner of questions. No subject off limits. Thank you. And welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Thank you very much. I actually would encourage you to go look up this entire, I don't think I have it linked, but just Chris Wallace Trump interview. Watch the entire thing. I got to hand it to Chris Wallace. I think he did a pretty good job here because he did the thing that these interviewees, or I'm sorry, interviewers never do. And that's just ask the next obvious question. When your interviewee says something that you could push back on, take that opportunity and ask the question. And Wallace actually does it in this interview, and it leads to some interesting rabbit holes. In this interview, Trump sort of betrays his true feelings about the lockdowns. He really, truly thinks the lockdowns are all just about him. And I think this is the fundamental flaw with the Trump presidency. And I think it's the characteristic that people are starting to see. Everything in Trump's world always comes back to Trump. He makes everything about himself like a true narcissist does. And listen to this clip and how he makes the lockdowns about him. I built the greatest economy in history. I'm now doing it again. You see the numbers. The numbers are through the roof. The Democrats are purposely keeping their schools closed, keeping their states closed. I called Michigan. I want to have a big rally in Michigan. Do you know we're not allowed to have a rally in Michigan? Do you know we're not allowed to have a rally in Minnesota? Do you know we're not allowed to have a rally in uh, Nevada? We're not allowed to have rallies well, in these Democrat-run states. Oh, wait a some people would say that it's a health risk, Some sir. people would say, would, fine. But I, mean, we, but I guarantee you, we had some issues after if everything was gone 100%, they still wouldn't allow it. They're not allowing me to do it. So they're not, they're, they're not allowing me to have rallies. But i got to tell you, it's all about him. And maybe he's right. Maybe some of these lockdowns are political, but it is a dangerous way for the man in that office to be thinking. And he has a very much us versus them mentality, which, again, can be understandable. But at the same time, it's a very divisive position for the president of the United States to outwardly take. And it doesn't promote a healthy nation. Mount Rushmore on July 3rd, you said that we face a far-left fascism in this country. And then you said this. Our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but that were villains. You said our children are taught in school to hate our country. Where do you see that? I just look at, I look at school, I watch, I read, look at the stuff. Now they want to change. If 1492, Columbus discovered America. You know, we grew up, you grew up, we all did. That's what we learned. Now they want to make it the 1619 Project. Where did that come from? What does it represent? I don't even know. It's so slavery. That's what they're saying, but they don't even know. They just want to make a change. Cancel culture. I hate the term, actually, but I use but, but it. But are they teaching Cancel people culture. to hate America? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Look at the professors. Look at what's going on in the colleges. If a conservative goes on a college. And look, we have... As many as them, excuse me, I think to the best of my knowledge, we're sitting at the White House and the Oval Office is right behind me. We have as many as them. But Who, who's them? The liberal, radical left. And I'm not talking all I think liberal. I, I could tell you I like a lot of liberal people. I like a lot of liberal governors and senators. But, but Chris, 
We have a radical left destructive ideology and it's being taught in our schools. And don't act like you're surprised to hear this. There are books written about it. And we can't let that go on. We can't let them change the true meaning of what we're all about. And that's what they're trying to do. And I don't want it to happen. Not on my watch. It's not going to happen on my watch. That may be one of the core tenets of his campaign going forward. I don't know. And I think that could be a winner. I don't know if I like it. Like I said, I think it doesn't promote a healthy country. Even if, say, behind the scenes, the president was scheming and thought all of this, outwardly promoting unity, um, well, I guess things change, right? Maybe I should maybe I should shut my mouth and just accept that things have changed. When I grew up, back in my day, um, 30 years ago, the... It was sort of a, it was a, with pride, we said the U.S. was a melting pot. Where, and the way I took that to mean is that everybody kind of came together and it was a real mixing of cultures where there was some overlaps. Um, and you see that even up in our community where I live, there's a lot of overlap in culture with the Mexican community that's also there. And you see that when you travel down south as well, especially as you get closer to the border, it's extremely common. But as you get more across the border and you get more into their core cities, it's clearly more different culture. But when you, as you get to the United States, it all kind of blends. And that was we were considered the great melting pot of the world. And I think we said that with pride. But now it feels like through these new sets of conversations and these new norms that we've established, the lines are more divisive and clear and bolder than ever. And I, I wonder if that doesn't actually encourage a new generation of racism because it's divisive other thinking. Instead of we're all in this melting pot together, even though you're different from me, it's all one big nation. It's now much, much, much more divided on all different kinds of lines from race to sex to religion in perhaps ways that were there before. But the dialogue is so sharply different now. And I think if the Trump campaign can capitalize on that in a way that would be somewhat cynical, but probably very effective. Now, there is an aspect to this interview, and I'm going to play the full context for you so that way you guys can hear the entire thing, which doesn't get played in clips. There was an aspect, though, that got the most play, and that was this test, this cognitive test. If I may, sir, respectfully, in the Fox poll, they asked people, who is more competent? Who's got, whose mind is sounder. Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you not do the it? Well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it last... It's a picture, and it says, what's last, that? And it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy. But I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you, you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer All right, what's the question? many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. okay? Uh, and I answered about- all 35 questions correct. A lot of airtime got... Um, I guess burned, <laughs> uh, having some fun. I, I, glab- I grabbed a little bit of the CNN panel, having a good laugh about it. Okay, so we also looked at the questions that President Trump insists Chris Wallace couldn't answer because they're, quote, 
they quote get very hard. She doesn't even sound like a professional news person, just a smug, kind of spiteful, political partisan. That's what they sound like, isn't it? I uh, I know I shouldn't harp on it, but it just uh, my see my grandpa was in the news, and they they just took it very they had a very serious tone to it, and um, this not not so much. Okay, so we also looked at the questions that President Trump insists Chris Wallace couldn't answer because they're quote they quote get very hard, and as Chris points out, the test includes pictures of animals to identify. Another question asks you to draw a clock ten past seven, and then to copy. A cube. In another section, five numbers are read out loud. You have to repeat them in order, and then three numbers are read, and you have to repeat them in backward order. And when you get down to the last five questions, which are those ones that the president said are the hard ones, you're asked to quote, name maximum number of words in one minute that begin with the letter F. Also, to recall five words that were given to you minutes earlier. And then the very last questions ask that you name the date, the month, year, day, the place, and the city that you are in. And that is what the president of the United States is bragging about being able to do. This is a cognitive test. It is not meant to be hard, right? This is an exam that's meant to identify people who have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Let's see. Frisky, fantastic, funny, furious. And did I already say fabulous? I don't think so. But just in case, I'll also put fuzzy. I did it. I did five. And uh, seven back from 100 is 93. Ah, I'm good. I can be president of the United States. Actually, the big question that only a few people are asking, and it did come up in this panel on CNN, is why did Trump take the test? What was the trigger for taking a test that checks for a dementia or Alzheimer's patient's cognitive abilities. Was it elective or was it recommended by a doctor? Big question is, why did the president's doctors, and by the president's words, he said recently, why did the president's doctors decide to test him for this? Current guidelines uh, suggest using this tool only when there is a concern for impairment. So what I'd like the White House to explain is why did the president's physicians and he said multiple doctors watched him take this. Why did they feel that it was important to test his mental competence? Again, this is not an IQ test. It's a dementia test. Right. And also, um, in the sort of spirit of Wallace asking the questions that you want to hear asked, he just asked Trump straight up. Ask you a direct question. No, no I'm going to ask you a direct question about Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden senile? I don't want to say that. I say he's not competent to be president. To be president, you have to be sharp and tough and so many other things. He doesn't even come out of his basement. They think, oh, this is a great campaign. So he goes in. I'll then make a speech. It'll be a great speech. And some young guys start writing. Vice President Biden said this, 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 this. He didn't say it. Joe doesn't know he's alive. I do whine because I want to win. Now, speaking of Trump and Jeffrey, Trump was asked about gasoline in jail, and he had a very strange response in a recent press conference. Well, my second question, uh, it's a little bit uh, different topic, but it's one that a lot of people are talking about. Ghislaine um, Maxwell is in prison, and so a lot of people want to know if she's going to turn in powerful people. And I know you've talked in the past about Prince Andrew, and uh, you've criticize Bill Clinton's behavior. I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? 
I don't know. I haven't really been following her too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, and I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. Now, what is the possibility that he doesn't know what the situation is with Maxwell or with Prince Andrew? Pretty low? Possible, but pretty low. It suggests perhaps she has something on him or he is just not only uninformed, but has a failing memory because in 2015, he sure seemed to have a handle on the situation. Here's Trump in a drive by interview just as he was ramping up his presidential apparatus. He was setting up offices in different states. The hosts were familiar with Trump and they were familiar with his friend Jeffrey. It's the question of Jeffrey Epstein and your remarks about pre- in the Q&A. Well, I think he's Sean. got a problem. I mean, what do you I'm, think I'm the problem here. will be? I, I don't know, but that island was uh, really a cesspool. There's no question about it. Just ask Prince Andrew. He'll tell you about it. Uh, the island was an absolute cesspool. So, the Clintons uh, are friends And he's yours, been there right? for many times. The Clintons are friends. Well, yours. I can't say friends, but I You're know You're friendly. Them. You know them. Well, they you, play are, at my clubs you, a lot. I have clubs, uh, and everybody likes are, to play at my clubs. Are you saying there's a political problem for her if she runs for president? Uh, it could be a political problem. Look, he could be a political problem. Right now, he's Teflon, and right now, maybe not. But he could end up being a political problem. I want to ask one question. Al, talk and in this clip here, he says, ask President Andrew about the island. He knows what the situation was in 2015. But now, when asked about gasoline... Well, my second question, it's a little bit a different topic, but it's one that a lot of people are talking about. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell is in prison, and so a lot of people want to know if she's going to turn in powerful people. And I know you've talked in the past about Prince Andrew, and uh, you've criticized Bill Clinton's behavior. By the way, this reporter is the same reporter that asked President Trump if he would pardon... Joe Exotic. I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? I don't know. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Hmm. And then he says it again. I wish her well. Uh, But I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. Yeah, you were in 2015, though. I don't know. You let me know. Discord would probably be my preferred spot or at Chris Lass on Twitter, but uh, unfiltered.show slash Discord if you'd like to jump in there. And uh, who knows? Like, we, we can only just sort of collect information with this kind of thing and evolve our opinion over time. That's literally the only tools we have for this particular story, so that's what we'll do. Why don't we end on a more positive note? In Space Watch for you now, the 300th spacewalk carried out by U.S. astronauts was completed on Tuesday. Check it out. This was uh, the pair of NASA astronauts' fourth spacewalk outside the International Space Station in four months. Chris Cassidy and Robert Benkin spent about five and a half hours preparing for future upgrades, and that includes installing a commercial airlock for experiments. They were originally scheduled to continue replacing solar power batteries, but that project was finished ahead of schedule. Benkin plans to return to Earth August 2nd. There's still really cool things going on, even during all of this. Isn't that kind of nice? Thank you for letting me have some time, and I will work in the future to communicate that a little bit better. Patreon.com slash unfilter if you want to support the show. I try to give you a holistic view. We start with COVID, 
And we talk about how it's going to shape the economy because the two things are so closely interlinked and it's going to be such a massive story for a while. And then we move into some of the more news and the election stuff, which is in the background here in the States. But in the meantime, I'm watching the protests in Seattle and Portland. I'm trying to track the news feeds from different places and I'm trying to keep the conversation going in that Discord. All of it informs future episodes. So many things that don't make it into the recorded version of the show are still worth reading in the show notes at unfilter.show slash 318. Do go check that out. There's some good stuff over there. And sometimes you'll hear me say something like, where did he get that? That's well, probably in the show notes, and I just don't cite it because there's a lot in the show notes. But I think it does help paint a more complete picture. So if you'd like to contact me, if you've got some thoughts and you don't want to jump on Discord... I do have the contact page. I understand. I'm sort of social networked out myself. I've kind of pulled back in other areas, actually, because it's just a lot. But you can uh, you can telegram me at Chris Lass or unfilter.show slash contact. We do have a Proton Mail back to email submission page, which you can go to. I think it made it. My recording machine had a failed disk this morning, but I think everything's up and running. I think I have a complete episode so I'm going to get this export to get it turned around and published. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode. See you back here next week. Mommy needs a joint. <laughs>